Boom! We're here! There we What's are. What's up? Yes. Jumping right into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what up, y'all? So, uh, this is our, our new kind of experiment to do in some media, media criticism, along with some class analysis, along with talking about just, like, cool sci-fi shit that uh, everyone should be reading and watching. So, uh, as you all know, I'm Bushido Squirrel. Uh, I've got my co-host, Chris Roth, here. How you doing, Chris? Doing all right. How about yourself? And then, oh, wait, you already I'm said doing you were doing well. all right. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing well. That hasn't changed. Uh, and then we also have Logan Chance here. How you doing, Logan? I'm doing excellent. How are you guys all doing? I've got beer. I can't complain. I have a, a very whiskey sour, and I think Chris has wine. I do. The Syrah. It's tasty. Exactly. <laughs> very, very oh fitting. Oh, my God. To it's so our... apropos. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you wondering uh, what these little logos are, if you haven't tuned into The Expanse, if you've never seen it before, we're kind of going to be looking at this at this series uh, through the lens of the different major factions. So I'm going to be representing the UNN, which is kind of Earth. Logan's going to be doing the Outer Planet Alliance, which is like kind of the working class. Exactly. And then Chris is going to be the Martian Congressional Republic. See, I finally got that one. You sort did. Of like you got it right. They're kind of like the imperial settler colonialists, but we're going to be getting into that like real quick. So before we go into that, though, I wanted to ask the, the both of you before we go, what is it about what is it about the expanse that has like drawn you to it and kept you to it? And I'm going to go to Logan first because he's new. Uh, what really drew me to the expanse was, I mean, really, it just came down to uh, because it started on Sci-Fi, even though it's now on Amazon, but. Um, I was a huge, huge fan of Battlestar Galactica, and so when I saw trailers for it, I went, oh, okay, so they're going to try and take another run at Battlestar. Okay, I'm in. Let's go. Let's get into it. And then, you know, what's kept me there is, um, you know, just with, you know, the kind of games that I play and a lot of the books that I read, um, you know, not to, you know, be punerific about it, but the expanse of the expanse and just the way that... Um, it has just these different factions, but you always you always feel like they're distinct. And these are, you know, different groups of people with varying levels of power and, and those power dynamics that are constantly shifting. So that's always just appealed to me. Oh, uh, Rashida, you got to unmute yourself. Yeah, what... what... <laughs> So what about you, Chris? Uh, for me, I, I mean, I've always been like a huge sci-fi fan um, since I, I, I literally I remember watching Star Trek uh, growing up like Star Trek Next Generation was on uh, in my family's house in the evenings. Uh, I don't remember if it was every week or what the story was, but I do remember I remember vivid, I vividly remember watching Star Trek Next Generation with my parents in the living room from when I was I must have been like six when we first started watching it or something like that. Or maybe it was earlier than that. It was honestly one of my earliest childhood memories is uh, most coherent childhood memories is watching that uh, and, and falling in love with it. And uh, you know, I've, I've probably seen every single thing uh, that involves Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, and that just, you know, was a very formative thing for me. Actually, I, I would, actually probably say that uh Jordy LaForge was more formative for me uh the whole like being an engineer and being able to fix things kind of uh absolutely determined my my future path in life 
and then when I got, you know, and but I, it was always like a separate thing because it was like, oh, they've got transporters. Oh, they've got like these phasers that you can just switch over, set to sun, and go, and then the person just falls over. Great. And replicators, that super moves, cool. That moves very slowly, like the world's slowest <laughs> laser. It does. Slow enough where well, you can go like this and duck out of the way of a beam of light. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, all, all, all of that fantasy aspect aside, it was, it was the, the philosophy of it that really drew me in. But it, it, it sold me on sci-fi as a genre that I would definitely be addicted to. And I also was, was a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica uh, when it came through. And I don't remember how I first heard about The Expanse, but as soon as I started watching it, I was just hooked like that. Uh, because I was just like, oh, this is, after working at SpaceX for eight years of my life, seeing something like The Expanse, I'm like, this is, uh, this is a sci-fi show that gets how space travel works? Yeah. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> sci-fi doesn't do space travel correctly. It's just not practical on any like on any television set and that seeing it done so well uh, was what drew me in with a couple of exceptions. And we'll get into those, uh, you know, when we start talking about the actual episodes, because I am not a fan of the fact that when Miller pours a drink, the water or the whiskey or whatever, does like a fucking loop de loop. It's like, that's not how this works. God damn it. <laughs> but they did, they did do better jobs with, uh, the other thing that is like a super like pet peeve of mine, um, you remember the movie Gravity, where yes, yes. Sandra Bullock is exhausted and then she cries and a tear goes Bing, and it just floats off toward the camera. That shit is not how it works. However, in The Expanse, when uh, in season five, four, no, three, uh, when Tilly gets like a through the middle and she's crying and her her eyes are just covered in moisture that's how it works if you cry you get goggles of tears and you can't see clearly because you're underwater inside of your own tears on your eyeballs uh that and the fact that they like gave a shit about those kind of details really was what sold me on it and kept me in it and then i was just like oh hey i'm a socialist at this point in my life after learning about things and this is class warfare in space and that really like drew me in so so hard. Uh, but Squirrel, what about you? What, what was it that got you hooked on this stuff in the first place? So, I mean, like like both of you, I watched a lot of Star Trek, and I also was a huge Battlestar Galactica fan. Um, you know, I think I still think Battlestar Galactica was really, like, a turning point for, like, hard sci-fi, really becoming a cultural phenomenon outside of the, like, Monster of the Week model that, that Star Trek had. Um, but beyond that, what really drew me into The Expanse was the way that it melds hard sci-fi, like the realities of like having to exist in space, what that would mean, but then also the way in which like the same issues that we deal with now would be amplified and replicated. You know, like when we talk about the expanse and the conflicts that we're going to be exploring and the themes we're going to be exploring here, they're not much different from what we're looking at in 21st century hypercapitalism. And I'm glad we all mentioned Star Trek because what we're going to do now is we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between the books and the TV show, but then we're going to go into the timeline. And if you only really know like Star Trek, the next generation and like sort of are familiar with that, the expanse is technically taking place in the 24th century, the exact same time Jean-Luc Picard is doing his thing. So <laughs> that's so wild to me. Oh, exactly. Logan, your video so, is crapping out. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, so what we see with The Expanse is a much more realistic look at how humanity will progress and how humanity could actually go to the planets in our solar system. And what a huge lift that is. Like, there is no Zephyrin Cochrane. I mean, there is, but it's not like Zephyrin Cochrane in the Expanse universe allows us to travel to other stars. He just lets us get to, like, Jupiter within a lifetime which would be a huge leap forward. But so let's go ahead and talk real quick about The uh, the Expanse as a TV show and book. So The Expanse is a series of books. Uh, it, it's going to be nine books in total. Right now they've released eight of them. And then we've also got five seasons uh, that we just finished up the fifth season on the TV show, uh, which as Logan mentioned, it started off on sci-fi. Sci-fi kind of went kaputsky. And then Amazon went ahead and bought, bought The Expanse's continued production. Now, the actual author on The Expanse is listed as James S.A. Corey. And James S.A. Corey is a pen name for two authors, for Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. And this is one thing about The Expanse that I think really makes it stand out from a lot of the ways we think about sci-fi. As you know, we tend to think about like Asimov and Banks and uh, Bradbury and all of these other like single authors who have like a big ovwa. Like, you know, you think about Philip K. Dick and his brand of sci-fi. And The Expanse is really a collaborative project. And that's one reason I think it has a lot more legs and it has a lot more depth. It has a lot more character development because, like, the characters, the worlds they live in feel much more fleshed out. The TV show, it looks like, is going to wrap up next season. So we're going to get six full seasons of The Expanse telling a pretty cool story that's kind of um, contained within the soul system, the solar system that we exist within. The TV show has, for a lot of reasons had to cut some corners, consolidate some stuff, change some plot points around. Because, like, as we all know, like, Logan, you do production. I'm a video editor. Like, it's a lot cheaper to write words than it is to put those words on screen. Because that's just the way production works. Like, it just you, – you, you can write a 1,500-word book – Turning that into a really good TV show that covers all those plot points is a lot harder, as all of us um, demoralized Game of Thrones fans found out. Uh, in my opinion, you should definitely go and read the books. They're really quick reads. They're really good. They're very, very interesting. They're really thick. Uh, if you want to do it on audiobook, they're like really exciting and fun to follow along with. The TV show, though, is also really good just because I think they've done a great job capturing that universe and really making it like a 3D thing and something you can really dip into. But for the purpose of this show and like the episodes we're going to be doing here on uh, Beltalota for the people in the back, we're only going to be covering the TV show. Like the books will probably be mentioned here and there, but we're really not focusing on them. So if you're thinking about like what kind of homework do I need to do to keep up with this show, you literally just have to watch the shows. And like you can get them all on Amazon Prime. Um, they're all available if you have a Prime subscription. If you um, if you don't feel like paying for Amazon Prime, there are most definitely nod, nod, wink, wink, other ways to watch The Expanse online that I'm not going to say because... Allegedly, 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 allegedly. Yeah, exactly. There I've, are, I've, there I've are probably other I've heard ways tales foretold. <laughs> yes, there are probably other ways for you to experience it. I would highly suggest you do, either before or after watching this. Even if you've seen it before, hopefully we're going to explore some themes and talk about stuff in like ways that you may not have thought of or ways that you may not have considered or ways that you just might want to explore more. So hopefully this is like a conversation between us and you and ways for you all to like explore this very interesting series through the lens of us also exploring this interesting series. So... You know, if you're on Twitch, if you're on Periscope, wherever you're watching, go ahead and hop into the chat. 
uh, get lively in there. Feel free to ask us questions. Uh, we're more than happy to chat about it and also research some stuff. Um, we'll be here every Friday at 7 p.m. And then once we wrap this about hour-long stream, uh, I'm probably going to play some video games. I'm not sure if Chris and Logan want to stick around for that. They can. Um, but we're just going to kind of fuck around on Friday nights because we're all stuck at home for a very long while. For more information on that, tune into the podcast Mondays at 7. But Very well anyways, done. I love that yeah, plug. Exactly. <laughs> Very exactly. well done. Exactly. <laughs> you always have to be pushing the brand. This is what I've learned from running, you know, doing this for four years. Uh, but so let's go ahead and talk about timelines a little bit here. Um, and before we talk about timelines, um, let's – so how, how we're going to do this, and we, I, I haven't really cleared this with uh, Chris and Logan before, but so we're going to go through this timeline, and as it becomes relevant, I'm going to pull them in to talk about their faction. So. Great. I'm representing Earth, which exists under the United Nations. And you might be wondering, how did the one world government come to be? And I'm glad you asked that question. So in the 2040s and 2050s, the world started coming out of a, a period of extreme conflict and uh, environmental degradation. You know, this is within our lifetimes pretty much. Uh, but in 2035, Mars was officially colonized for the first time, and people began going to Mars and began setting up the way in which they would live. And Chris, you can talk a little bit about what it's like to live on Mars. Well, uh, okay, sure. Uh, as we've all learned, and I, I, I am so mad at you for making, making me realize that this is canon. Uh, if you've watched the movie The Martian, life when you live on Mars sucks a lot in the early days. Uh, apparently, it's actually pretty good. By the time that the, the TV show gets there, things are pretty good. Um, but the Mars Congressional Republic is basically... Um, what's the best way? It's, it's, it's a quasi-fascistic state uh, where you exist solely for the benefit of Mars. Like, yeah. it is nationalism on a scale that is just basically unthinkable in you know in our in our world right now uh where literally everything is done for mars with a a a, a long-term dream and a multi-generational dream uh i i think that they actually referred to it in one of um i think it was the fourth season uh where the 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 comparison is made to the gothic cathedrals the construction of the mm -hmm. gothic cathedrals mm -hmm. where the original builders who laid the first stones did so knowing that they would never live to see the completion of the project and that what they were doing was for their grandchildren and their grandchildren's grandchildren and so on and so forth and that's exactly what is going on with uh how mars is constructed uh, it is a multi-generational project with the goal of terraforming Mars. And they, uh, the eventual goal, uh, as you know, there's a, a great line in season one of you know, people talking about how great it would have been to have seen an ocean on Mars. Uh, and, you know, that's their, their, their final words from this character. Uh, and that's, that's the whole thing. It's all about the dream of turning Mars from a desolate, uninhabitable, lifeless hellscape, which it currently is and is when Matt Damon goes and turns into an extremely emaciated version of himself, a la The Machinist, and uh, just has to eat shit potatoes for a long time. Um, but he was apparently the first colonizer, uh, and the entire process is colonization. That's They, they are very upfront about that. Um, they don't actually mention Elon uh, in, uh, in The Expanse, which is nice. 
uh, I did I did appreciate uh, at the time that I was working at SpaceX, uh, it got mentioned. Uh, the the author of the Martian came in and and gave a talk because we could do that uh, as you know because of Elon's connections of the of the billionaire class right. Uh, Zubrin also came in and Zubrin actually has some of the most interesting things to say about like the whole how do we get to Mars how do we make colonies on Mars how do we settle it uh, and realistically he has the best handle on how all of that would work with modern technology. Um, but the author of uh, the Martian. Uh, basically said that had SpaceX existed, uh, the entire plot point of his book wouldn't have made sense because we would have had more access to space and they wouldn't have had to wait so long, uh, which is a lot more faith uh, in the existence, uh, in the capitalist structure than I would necessarily give it. Um, but I do think that there was a bit of an underestimation of how quickly things were going to progress. Uh, but you know, I, I have mixed feelings about my time at SpaceX and, uh, don't, don't get me started on the, the starship explosions. Um, yeah. the, the, those, those act, the explosions are actually like in the process of learning how to do something that has literally never been done before. Uh, and it's not just blowing up a spacecraft for the sake of blowing up a spacecraft. Uh, there is, there is a method to the madness, but Elon is also a massive fucking asshole. Yes. Uh, you can separate the two. <laughs> but the so, engineers that I worked so, with were awesome. Anyway. Yeah. But so during this period of time, like <laughs> while people are beginning to colonize Mars from 2035 on out, Earth is sort of like getting closer and closer to unification. Luna, uh, I, the moon, is also being colonized. We're building spaceports and stuff up there because it's a lot easier to build large structures and spaceships in less gravity like it just makes a lot more sense we're also beginning to mine near earth asteroids for resources we're mining the moon for asteroids we're doing all the fun extractive stuff we do here on earth but just like on other celestial bodies now 60 years after the colonization of mars earth finally gets its shit together and the un becomes the de facto world government and the un secretary general goes from being like sort of a ceremonial position to the actual like president of the planet like that's the person who is now essentially running the planet now there's a race for technology between mars and earth going on because mars is like pretty independent around uh the 2100 mark they they hit about 13 million people living on mars which you got to consider for like 65 years of development is pretty big we're looking at about yeah. 25 billion people on the planet earth and what's happening on earth is that we're running out of jobs Automation has taken over. AI is like very big. You just don't need as many humans to do as much and produce as much work. Global climate change has really devastated a lot of the planet. So people tend to live in mega cities. They don't have access to work. There's sort of a UBI scheme that most people live on. If you want to get just a basic job, an apprenticeship, you've got to apply and like work your way through a whole program. Some people sit on these waiting lists for like 50, 60, 70 years for their entire lives. And during this during this time, human life is expanding. So human life is going from an average uh, lifespan of like 72 up to the 140s, up to the 160s, up to the 180s by the time we get to the start of the book. So people live for a much longer period of time, which means it's a much heavier logistical lift to get people stable, to provide for them for that entire life. Now, Mars begins jockeying for independence around the, the 2150 mark. And then it was uh, the Epstein drive was uh, was invented, I want to say like 2125. And that's what Mars essentially uses to get itself 
free from the earth. And Chris, maybe you can explain what the Epstein drive is, at least theoretically. Like, obviously, this isn't science that exists now, but why does the Epstein drive matter in the books? So the reason why the Epstein drive matters in the books is that uh, you're able to do you're able to go a lot further and accelerate for a lot longer on a lot less fuel. Like it's basically, he took the the engines that they were using before, which was some kind of a fusion-based reactor system, and he was able to crank the hell out of the efficiency on it and transformed what, you, you know, if you're traveling in space, uh, you ideally want to be accelerating the entire time at a level that is comfortable for, for if, you, if you're doing a human-based system, you want to be accelerating at around 1G the whole time so that you can create effectively artificial gravity just by acceleration. Um, and then you want to then flip and turn around and do the exact same thing in the other direction, decelerating at 1G, and that way you continue to feel as though you are on the Earth standing and walking around on your spaceship that's why they're all like skinny and tall and everybody's heads are pointing toward the top of the front of the ship well, so, um, so like but, I, I do want to mention this so when we when we think about spaceships we think of like the the enterprise right where it's it's no. laid it, well it's laid out where everyone's walking on the floor this way and the ship is oriented this way but actually the ships are oriented up and down and people are walking this way so it's more like living in a skyscraper than it is like yeah. living on a, a strip of land and that's part of the realism of it because like yeah hey chris if you if you accelerate real fast is that good for the human body no it's very bad <laughs> you can you can stroke out uh literally you your your a blood clot will go in your brain and you'll die um, yeah. and that actually, that's the, that's the story behind, uh, the inventor of the Epstein drive is, uh, he was tinkering around with a, a, an engine, uh, did the thing that tinkering people do and decided to go on a test run and did not do his calculations correctly. Um, in the sense that he was wildly conservative, uh, and then he killed himself by virtue of just make being too good of an engineer, apparently. Uh, not my life goal, but it worked for him and made him a ton of money and, and made sure that his wife was going to live forever, you know, happily ever after as one of the richest people in the universe. Um, yeah. but, uh, the point is, so the, the I, I would actually argue that most of these things are less like a skyscraper and more like, um, uh, a, a, a home in, uh, uh, in the Netherlands, like one of those, one of those Dutch, like townhomes that are super skinny yeah. and everything's like right. very tall and like narrow spaces. Uh, so you're constantly climbing ladders or stairs to get from one floor to the next, uh, because that's what you do. So the point is that, yeah. uh, to burn the fuel and keep running like that at a constant acceleration from one point to the next is very fuel intensive. And it, you can't, you just literally can't do it. Uh, the only way we can do it right now is with like an ion drive, which just does not put out anywhere near one G of acceleration. Um, but that's so, the idea behind this drive is that it, you could do one G of acceleration for basically forever with a standard fuel load. And that changed literally everything. So go ahead and pull up that solar map because we're going to oh, pull sure. Logan here in a second. Yeah, but, let's take a look. Yeah. I wanna, yeah. So this is why the Epstein drive matters in terms of we as humans and how we interact with the, the solar system around us. So sure. that that big glowing ball, that's the sun. And that that one band that you can kind of see. Yeah, let's zoom in a little bit. There we go. So now we can see uh, Venus, and we can see Earth, and we can see Mars. And Mars and Earth, they're, like, pretty close together, right? Like, that's an easy trip. Zoom out to Jupiter well, real it's, quick. Well, it's, it's an easy trip here. It's less of an easy yeah, trip yeah. if Earth is here and Mars is, like, over there. But, you but know. But let's, let's zoom out to Jupiter real quick. 
And let's look at the trip from Earth to Jupiter. So suddenly with the Epstein drive, we can start colonizing the the uh, belt of asteroids that lies between Mars and Jupiter. We can start colonizing the moons around Jupiter. We can start colonizing all of these huge celestial bodies, which leads to the rise of the belt. And at this point, just to let everyone know, there's about 4 billion people on the planet Mars. There's about 25 billion people on the planet Earth. Stuff's getting a little bit crowded. So, yeah. Logan, where do people start going? They start going to the belt, and that's... Uh... A region where you know work is plentiful not so much uh pay but there's definitely <laughs> or work. air or, or air. air or, or air water. or water and you know where where air they're you know out in the belt you know they're basically paid in air and water and and just the basic functions to survive and so with the opa uh it is uh basically the workers getting organized and so they're immediately branded terrorists just immediately shocker of shockers <laughs> and so through that uh i just remember in uh, uh one of these uh, first two episodes uh it was brought up you know if the first water shipment is missing there's protests if the second water shipment is missing people die and that is a leverage that earth and mars use to keep the workers in line and so with the opa it is you know the people saying we aren't going to fucking take it anymore. And, but another part, you know, with the Belters, that's, that's quite interesting is, you know, uh, after a generation of living in zero G or very little gravity relative to even Mars, much less earth is that their bodies become incapable of being on earth to where literally being outside of a water tank is considered torture <laughs> and we know that because Avasarala tortured somebody in the very first episode and uh it, it's it is just them uh realizing you know we were told at some point we would make enough money to go home well we no longer have a home to go to our home is in the belt and the belt is ours and we're not going to just let you you know run roughshod over us but they also don't have money or resources. But what they do have is labor and people who are tough enough to survive because a lot of people die doing this work. And uh, a lot of people and the people who do survive uh, are considered gods among mortals because, you know, really think about it, you know. How long does it take in this series before you see an old belter? And it's almost until the most recent season that you do mm -hmm. see an old belter. And so this is a young working class who know that their lives are the only currency they have. And so they use that currency to get organized and to start flipping the script on the existing power structures. But it's going to cost a lot of lives. And it, it's one of these things that's very interesting, too, because the, the belt doesn't really have a government. Like, Mars has a government, Earth has a government, but the belt doesn't. Instead, what's happened is sort of this hyper-capitalism, where deeds and leases are given to Earth and Mars corporations. Now, Mars corporations, you can think of this more like the state capitalism of the current Chinese uh, government, where, like, their corporations are more state enterprises. On Earth, it's more yeah. like an end caps paradise where 
you have a corporation, that corporation wants to develop and exploit resources out on the belt, you give them a lease to like ownership and running and control of these very far flung places. Because even on like, even at best, it's a couple months trip from earth out to the belt. Like it takes, it takes some time. It even takes like, you know, 20, 30 minutes for communications to get from the belt to earth because like, Hey Chris, how fast can things travel? Uh, the speed of light. Exactly. And the speed of light, it takes some time. You don't think about this, but it takes eight minutes for a be- for a photon to get from the sun to your eye. Now, to, to just, like, also make that a little bit wacky, it takes a million years from that photon to get from the center of the sun out to be shot out to your eye in eight minutes. But that's a different branch of physics that we're not going to deal with. But... It takes some time to get around. So we've we've ceded sovereignty to corporations, and these corporations run the massive landmarks that make up the belt, things like Ceres Station, which is one of the Jovian moons, things like um, Eros, which is a, a another extra uh, an extrasolar body where there's a lot of resources and a lot of people live. But for most belters, they don't vote on anything. They don't have any democratic process in their lives. They're just sort of born into a capitalist nightmare controlled by the UNN or run by the Martian government. And you also Quick. think, well, hey, can't I get like a spaceship and just go out there and mine some moon rocks and like pull some gold out of an asteroid and go sell that? And you're like, well, you could, except we have, you know, like trade agreements enforced by people with guns, people with guns from Mars and Earth who don't want you, the belter, to be able to make as much money as you could possibly make. So every level of a belter's life is essentially controlled by who they call the inners, i.e. Earth as sort of the the corporations and Mars as the kind of like neo-imperial power. And uh, Chris, go ahead. I just wanted to quickly interject and point out that Ceres is actually a dwarf planet that exists in the asteroid belt. Uh, Okay, you got me. It is. It is actually round, um, which is cool, uh, but it's it's uh, fourteen times less massive than Pluto, uh, yeah. which is saying something. So there's like almost no gravity there. Uh, it's it's definitely a. a it, it is the the largest. It comprises twenty five percent of the mass of the asteroid belt. So it's way bigger than anything else in the belt. Um, but it was not able to turn into a planet because of Jupiter. Jupiter was just like pulling all that stuff and keeping it all loosey goosey as it were, uh, and didn't allow for the, uh, accretion of enough mass into a single body, uh, to form a planet. But even if it did have enough mass around to form into a planet, it would still be very, 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 very tiny. Um, and would probably not actually, well, eh, it would have, it would have, it would have made things interesting from an astronomical perspective um, in terms of planet classifications, but it's considered to be a dwarf planet, the same as, uh, as Pluto. So it doesn't get named in the whole, uh, my very excellent mother just baked us nine pies or whatever the fucking thing is oh, uh, served right. us nine pies. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I just she, had a flashback. The pies, grade. <laughs> the pies got dropped. There's no more pies. Um, but yeah, so, so series series is, uh, an, uh, uh, the largest thing in the asteroid belt. And uh, mm-hmm. you actually start off with the first episode of this show talking about the fact that Ceres was, uh, had enough water on it, at least in this universe, to supply belters with water for a thousand generations, uh, as they put it, because you know, obviously you have to recycle everything if you're living in space. Um, and they do yeah. they recycle people too. You turn into mushroom food uh, when yeah. you die. But the uh, the water on Ceres is taken uh, 
by the inner planets to do their colonial projects. So basically, like, that's the baseline of where the OPA is coming from is there were, you know, there was a paradise as far as the OPA, uh, you know, populace was concerned, a potential paradise in terms of raw resources. Uh, and, you know, we got to scale it back. It's not like a solar punk future here on Earth. This is very dystopian hell space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were enough resources in series to, to, to last for a long time. But it was all stripped away by the Earth and Mars corpse uh, to help with the terraforming of uh, Mars and just the, the lining of the pocketbooks of the oligarchs on Earth. Uh, and that, that, that was my one little... Yeah, and, no, and, well, and, 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 oh, go ahead, Logan. Oh, and, and Chris, to kind of jump on that as far as um, kind of what was underlying the uh, pilfering of all of that water, at least in the case of Earth, is Earth had a massive fucking climate catastrophe. And I like the implication being it fucked all their resources up and resulted in them just they never have anything happening in florida there is no no, florida mention there is no florida (laughs) there is but also like you know new york is surrounded by seawalls because the sea levels have risen so high but there's also no sea life on earth all the things we're talking about now the two degrees two degrees centigrade that we're trying to avoid we didn't avoid that and all of that shit fucked everything up Humans were able to survive the climate apocalypse because we have technology and we're able to rebound and thrive through the use of megacities. But those megacities require an input of resources that we don't have here on the Earth. So for a while, we were extracting that from Mars. And then Mars was like, uh, you know what? Fuck you. We got the Epstein drive. We're going to make some stealth tech. We're going to build some nuclear missiles. We're going to get into a mutually assured destruction sort of thing with the planet Earth just so you guys don't fuck with us anymore. And so the planet Earth, along with the Martians, began uh, building massive solar mirrors, solar reflectors around uh, the moon of Ganymede, which uh, is one of the the moons around Jupiter. I know that one. (laughs) One of the like 80 some odd moons around Jupiter. And what those Jovian system is nuts. Yes, what those it's essentially a solar system in and of itself. Uh, Just a hard break here, real quick. If you want to read about. Uh, an entire sci-fi universe that takes place around a gas giant. Giant, read the Algebraist by Ian M. Banks. It's mm. fucking trippy as hell. But Jupiter, in and of itself, is a mini solar system. And so we build these giant solar reflectors and solar collectors that take what little sunlight comes out there and reflects it down into greenhouses to grow all of the food for the rest of the solar system, essentially. Much like we have rural America or the Romans had like their far flung rural agrarian provinces to feed the metropolitan Rome. That same thing's happening here. The food for the belt, the food for Mars, the food for earth is not grown on any of those planets or any of those asteroid belts. It's grown on Ganymede and then shipped around. So these become points of contention. Basically by uh, 2260 or so, Things become a little bit more heated. Uh, Mars and Earth are both jockeying for position, trying to decide, like, who's going to be the dominant power. Remember, even though we're, like, one species, we're in one solar system, there's still those same politics of domination, of hegemony that are still going on. There's some big freaking navies out there flying around. There's billions of people that need to eat, that need to have a place to take a poop, that need to be able to drink some water. They also want jobs. All of those same dynamics are still happening. 
And so that brings us up to around uh, the 22nd century when all of this stuff is beginning to happen. So the books sort of begin in like the 2260s. And that's when something interesting is found in a, an extrasolar body. And scientists begin to fuck around with this. And as we always know, scientists fucking around with things uh, always goes good places for all of us <laughs> and never kills millions of people um, through experimentation. But, so, yeah, I wanted to, to, to kind of dial in the timeline there for anyone who's kind of curious. And from here, we can talk about the class war aspects. But, Chris, I think you want to play around with the solar map a little bit more. Yeah, I just wanted to show everybody. So the, the extrasolar object that we're talking about so, you know, there's this is the sun here in the middle, uh, not the middle of the screen anymore, but in the middle of the, the rings that represent the uh, elliptical orbits of the planets. Um, they're not circles, people. They are ellipses. That's how this works. Um, but yeah, so Earth and Mars pretty near near to each other. And it's like a 20 ish, 20 something minute uh, broadcast delay, I believe, on average for the for light to travel um, for signals to travel from Earth to Mars. But it varies very much. Uh, depending upon where in the orbital cycle they are. Um, and the Ju the Jovian moons that we we're talking about for Ganymede and everything are, are out here around Jupiter, and that is feeding the belt, and the belt exists in this space between Mars and Jupiter. I'm going to try to find a better uh, a better thing to represent all of this, and I'm hoping that it exists out there. So Phoebe, this extrasolar object that is the uh, the root of all of the uh, everything going... Uh, very not good uh, in this in this entire plot line of this series is uh, the it's an extrasolar object that got caught in the orbit around Saturn, and so it's I think it's worth pointing out to everybody that Saturn actually is uh, the second largest planet in the system, and Jupiter is just shy of enough mass to actually turn itself into a sun. Uh, it's significantly so smaller close. than so close. It, but it's significantly smaller than the sun itself, but it is the next closest thing to a sun in our solar system. And then Saturn is also just fucking huge. Um, but Phoebe is, uh, it, it exists as a, um, uh, you know, it's an extrasolar body that is trapped into the orbit of Saturn and it exists basically like it's a moon. Um, what's the, what's the name of that station? Uh, that they they run off to in the end of season one, Tycho. 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 No, no, no. Tycho's the uh, Tycho is a, a sorry. The name oh, of Palace. the oh was it yes. Palace? Or we... yeah, Palace. There's Palace Station is the main trade hub. Tycho Station is like the jewel of the oh, belt. Eros. Like the, the really Arrow Station. Oh yeah, yeah. Eros. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to remember. Does it? Hey, look, bingo! I can find Eros. Uh, whoop! Apparently, Eros is around Jupiter. Wait. Yes. What? Camera locked to Jupiter. Un unlock the camera. Go to that. Ah, nope. Nope. Asteroid 433 Eros. No. I. There it is. So you can actually see the orbit of Eros is this one. It's this pink thing. Uh, mm -hmm. That is Eros. So you can see where Eros is floating. So it is uh, another thing in the belt, uh, although it's actually not in the belt. It's it 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 floats. It orbits between Earth and Mars. Uh, and then it, you know, actually orbits outside of the orbit of Mars, 
before it loops back in because not everything is uh, super, super centered around the sun. Uh, the sun just happens to be at one of the uh, centroids within the, or one of the foci, focuses, foci. I don't know how to say these things uh, of the ellipse. I've only read um, it. <laughs> Fair enough, uh, but yeah. So the that's where where Eros is. Eros is the station where everything where the shit really goes down in season one. Um, but I just wanted to like point out where everything is at for people because uh, that is a a worthwhile uh, little thing. I think I can add in. Can I add in series? Yes, I can. So hey, look at that. I've got the orbit of series. Uh, so you can see where Ceres exists between Jupiter and Mars, how it, it, it has a, a more centralized orbit. Oh, I'm so happy about this tool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was, that was what I wanted to, to interject here before we uh, get back into it. So uh, yeah, that was all I had. Nice. So. All right. Where, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, one sec. I'm uh, having some technical difficulties. Give me one second. It's all good. I can go back and futz around with the solar system. Let's see. Can all I right. add other things in here? There we go. I fixed it. But so uh, here's where I wanted to go with this one. I, I, I wasn't just having Chris fuck around with, with stars for no reason. <laughs> but what I wanted to lay out here is as far as the kind of class warfare goes, like what we're talking about and why we feel like ultimately – we can analyze the expanse through a Marxist lens and a lens of like dialectical materialism and not be completely like talking out of our asses is because these themes are really important. So I'm going to go to Logan real quick to talk about like, what does the OPA want? What's the OPA looking for? How do they fit into this like class struggle analysis that I'm setting up? I mean, really what the OPA wants is self-determination and what their struggle is, is that you have, you know, two massive governmental entities that basically use corporations as proxies to uh, keep them in line. And so for them, you know, with uh, resources being, you know, at an all-time low for them, and, I mean, it, it's honestly quite similar to uh, Fiji Water, with the way that the workers of Fiji water have to buy Fiji water that they produce in their own country. Yeah, yeah, the Resnick family are uh, fucking monsters. Uh, that's the wonderful company. They are monsters. And uh, the pomegranate fuckers. Yeah. So yep. uh, that's it, it really it's it's their they're watching their own home. They're, they're basically being used as workers to strip mine their own homes. And so, you know, step one is stop. And then step two is, okay, well, we need to organize and to, uh, you know, really be masters of our own destiny. And the, you know, a big problem with the the belt is that because all of these factions among the belt have been created and the implication being is that those factions were created by design these are you know what, actually people who work company to company let, let me let me roll back here Hit for me. a second is the opa like a monolithic thing no 
explain the factions a little bit because this becomes like more important later on but i think it's an interesting thing to talk about here that the opa isn't like the unn it's not one world government i mean it's very tribalistic it's it's all and, and it's almost uh completely limited to the ship or fleets that these people are on because they are you know basically uh, uh the the worker teams and then, you know, when you are working in such dangerous conditions for corporations and governments that do not give a shit about you, the only people you trust is each other. And so at some point, you know, these groups get made and uh, the leaders, basically the people who've survived the longest, end up, you know, becoming the elders. And then through that, that kind of each faction kind of has their own personality based off of just the people who managed to live through these uh, heinous uh, uh, conditions. And then through that, you know, at some point people start saying, I'm not going to take this shit anymore. And then through that, they start talking to each other and these different factions start talking to each other, even though they don't really like each other. And then through that, uh, that is how the, the process of the OPA begins, that like the A is alliance. And that means, hey, we didn't like each other before, but fuck these guys, right? Like that's basically what the OPA is. <laughs> and, yeah, the enemy and, and that's of my how enemy. it started. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, and it really, you know, shows at, like as far as their culture, it's clear like they've developed their own language and and it, it's almost a language of languages and you know through that it, you know you can see you know through miller's uh journey because he's able to speak belter and you really start to get a sense very very quickly that the the people in the belt are very much a different people and a different culture and almost and especially with their bodies changing, they're almost a, com a different species as Earth and Mars. Like, you know, mm -hmm. with like I said, you know, with Mars, you go to Earth, you have a bad time, you're disoriented, you might need some drugs to not vomit. If a belter goes to Earth, they're going to start fucking withering away and dying. Yeah. And so that, that that's, you know, kind of how the OPA came to be because it was, you know, nobody will have us, so I guess we'll just have each other. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I thought that one of the really fun details that came out in the most recent season is that apparently at least some of the OPA factions are basically just giant polycules. And yeah. like, that's just how they roll. I mean, what like, what else are you going to do on a spaceship where like literally it takes weeks to transit between stations? If not like you might spend your entire life on a ship, you yeah. might only visit Ceres or Palace or Tycho one of these jewels of the belt a couple times in your life. It's expensive to dock there. You have to have a reason to be there. It Most of your work is out in zero G like brothels you're, you're overcharge. Not... Well, and you're you're you know, when it comes down to it, like there are people who are born and die on what aren't generation ships. Like they're born and they die on what the equivalent of a super tanker is because like yeah. you might only live to be 15 or 16 and maybe your whole life is just doing a couple of runs between Mars and the belt transporting water or other raw minerals. You're not, you're, you're essentially a, you know, the, the dancing people in the Titanic movie. Like you're not an upper decker type person. You're somebody who's just there to do the work, and that's all you're able to do because 
you don't produce your own air, you don't produce your own water, you're dependent on corporations coming from like the Earth and, and Mars to do that. But uh, before I get into that too much, Chris, tell me about the Martian Congressional Republic and what it is they're trying to achieve and how they fit into this struggle. Well, so uh, Mars is, as you describe, it, it has been described a little bit in the chat going on here. And thank you, by the way, Rachel, for tuning in. We, we're loving this conversation. Uh, Mars is very much like the Roman Empire. More people should uh, chat with us. We, we, we want the engagement. Engage with us. Engage with us for sure. Play with also, us. The, the, the topic of sex in Zero G actually shows up in the first episode. Almost um, immediately. Yeah, it's like within the first few minutes of it, uh, which is interesting. Because apparently, just as a, a little side note, uh, there's a lot that gravity does for sex. And apparently it, it, it would be a lot more, uh, shall we say, energy consuming to try to procreate in zero G. Uh, I think that they would probably find uh, some some elastic bands might be useful for some certain <laughs> activities, but let's not get into that too deeply. Uh, the, the point here is that, so the, the Martian congressional Republic is all about collecting the resources that it needs in order to transform Mars into a version of earth that is more, um, I don't want to say egalitarian because it is, it is also hyper-capitalist. It's funny that there is no, uh, there's there's no socialist groups that exist in this society outside of the OPA factions who are very much of a uh, when when you're when you basically when you help each other you therefore your bull uh, runneth it's something along the your bull runneth over I forget the well the, I mean in, in Mars it's it's a little starship troopers in that like service bringing citizenship <laughs> yeah. type of vibe. But at the same time, like it's all about uh, like one one of the one of the troopers in uh, season two uh, is from a family that basically owns like all of the terraformers on Mars. So it's all about uh, who controls what resources, and that is very much a, a, a lineage based uh, kind of like a fiefdom within a. So it's it's it is extremely Roman when you look at it, um, because it's all for the good of the state. But at the same time, there are extremely wealthy and powerful families within that state that control a lot of things. But the military is really how the power structure in Mars is is focused. Like that's if you want to be powerful in Mars, you are a Marine. You serve in the Navy. You 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 do. Very much the Starship Troopers service guarantees citizenship. Everyone's a citizen, but like you got to go your route. And the people who go into the sciences and do the terraforming are also extremely valuable, but they're not the ones running the show. Like they run the technical bureaucratic side of it, but all of the power brokers are former Navy, former Marine. Like that's their shtick. Like they run that shit. And so it is extremely, extremely Roman in so many ways. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 that's, that is really the best analogy for it. So it's Romans in space. Um, yeah. and I, I their whole goal, way of putting it. absolutely. And their, their whole goal is to turn to, to build to the point where they don't have to live under domes because they very much in the same way that the, the members of the OPA are confined and restricted in their experience of how they live to just being on a spaceship on Mars, you're stuck living under a dome. So there, there's, uh, this, 
basically uh, not agor. I guess it is agoraphobia, right? The 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 fear of open spaces. It's a it's a disorienting um, experience for people, and it's a thing that the, they is is uh, touched on a couple of times throughout the series. That mm-hmm. it's just weird to be not in a very enclosed space if that's where your entire life is held. Martians don't suffer from it the same way that people in the in the OPA do. Um, and all belters. Belter is the, the the term for anybody that's not necessarily part of the, uh, shall we say, not militia structure, but like the 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 uh, the rebel the rebel alliance, as it were, uh, <laughs> that exists within the belt. Uh, that's the OPA. But the people that just live in in the belt are not all OPA. They could just be belters who are just trying to eke out an existence. Uh, but the OPA is the resistance faction that lives on the belt. Uh, and is doing their thing. They suffer from the agoraphobia at a much different level uh, than like if they're station bound or whatever versus people living out in space. None of them have any concept of what it's like to live on earth in the way that we just take for, for granted. Yeah. Um, But yeah. When, when it comes to Mars as well, they're locked in a technological struggle with the UN uh, militarily with the UNN, which is the United Nations Navy. And because Mars has a population dedicated to one project, they're able to leap forward technologically faster than the Earth because the Earth is trying to feed about 30 billion people without enough resources to go around, without enough jobs. So there's a lot of malaise on the planet Earth, a lot of stagnation. But Earth is still the the birthplace of humanity. It's still the main center around which the rest of the soul system orbits, as it were. But the UN is also frail. It's very bureaucratically overbuilt. It's not responsive to its people. So they're constantly facing off against the Martian Congressional Republic to be the dominant power. And both Mars and the UNN want to keep the belt under control because the belt can kind of be analogized to the global south, but not in the same racialized way that we have. In a sense, the Earth cannot exist without the exploitation of these other two planets. And that includes Mars. Like, Mars is responsible for a lot of the technological leaps that Earth is able to benefit from. But both Mars and Earth would not be able to do what they can do if it wasn't for the cheap mineral mining that was happening in the belt. And as we see this play out, we find that the things we take for granted now the things that are valuable to us things like gold those don't matter so much in the space future we're moving into you know what's what's really valuable lithium's really valuable why is lithium valuable because no new lithium will be created since the beginning of the universe the stars we have now aren't heavy enough to create it and you need a shit ton of lithium for expensive batteries to get you through space that will last for hundreds of years to build you spaceships and to build you space stations that will allow you to leapfrog out into the cosmos so what we have here is a wealthy but stagnant aristocracy a vital and a fast-moving imperial militaristic core and a young, vibrant worker class all locked in a struggle, confined within the static soul system, and then into this, like, ready-to-be existential war that's about to explode, some very interesting and unplanned technology drops and upsets the entire balance of power and becomes a wild New tech card. Drops. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to do. New tech just drops. That's what we're going to be exploring. New tech just dropped into the solar system. Quite literally, the gravity well just pulled in some new tech. But so we're going to be exploring that through these next couple of episodes. Uh, for the next uh, the next stream that we do next Friday night at 7, we're going to be watching Dulcinea and the Big Empty, the first two episodes. We're probably going to be doing two to three episodes like 
for one of these streams, we can't spend like too much time going plot point by plot point, but we do want to get like the broader overarching theme. So uh, as we quickly round towards 8 p.m., uh, I just want to say thank you all for like joined, uh, who've uh, tuned in for this first kind of initial broadcast. We are going to be putting this up on SoundCloud for those of you that like listen to the podcast because why the hell wouldn't we do that? Um, <laughs> but with that in mind, um, we're also going to be looking at uh, some of uh, Christian Avicerala's best dresses because like that woman oh, yeah. can dress. We are uh, going to have many fashion segments. Yeah, exactly. Fashion segments. Exactly. So uh, before we go, though, I want to turn over to uh, Chris and then to Logan. Uh, any parting thoughts before we go? Um, I there was there was something that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to really touch on um, that people don't don't probably quite grasp is that building big spaceships on Earth is next to impossible because it takes an incredible amount of energy to get out of. Uh, as you phrased it, the gravity well. Um, the If you think about it, if you want to build something big and do a lot of stuff in space, it's extremely difficult to do that where you build it here and then you launch it up into space and it does its thing. That's why the colonization of uh, the moon is such a core part. Like Earth and Luna as a system uh, is how it's referred to for the UN. Like that's the main body. And the moon has millions and millions of people living on it. And uh, it, it's it's an incredible resource. They don't really show that much of it up until the fifth season, but that really fundamentally is how Earth is able to project power into space is because of the moon. Like we wouldn't be able to do what we do as the UN uh, from an Earther perspective uh, without the moon. And I just find that like, again, this the fact that all of this stuff is so rooted in the actual science of what it would be like to do uh, space colonization uh, is what really just like sold me on, uh, hooked me on the show in the first place. Um, but yeah, I, I the the class warfare is really what what brings it home and and, make, and makes it resound within my heart. Uh, whenever the the Belters are doing the Belter things, I'm I'm always cheering for the Belt uh, every step of the way, even when they do some pretty fucked shit, because uh, that does happen a few times. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and Logan. then uh, Logan, uh, closing thoughts. Uh, I'd say my closing thoughts is uh, you know the Expanse is is not just hard sci-fi, but also hard sci-fi politics, and with the with the concept of you know oh it's way into the future that couldn't you know we'll do things differently. I mean when when you look at the way that that corporations in this show are effectively governmental entities unto themselves. Yeah. And we just had this week a bill put forth for in Nevada that directly states that corporations will be able to, in very specific zones, be able to run and form their own government. And if you see, combine that with what Amazon's doing in Alabama – which is basically they are they just daring. got blocked from that they got blocked they are not allowed they to finally, stop the labor election yeah but what they did to try and stop it they're not going to get punished for it they just yeah. got told to stop and then when you combine all that with what we're already seeing with the spread of prop 22's influence when you put those three ingredients together what you get is the belts. <laughs> That's what you get. Yeah. 
And so, you know, it's with with the expanse, it's not just hard sci-fi, it's not just the science of it, it's also hard politics. I mean, I remember on the 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 Twitter account, uh, I think it's Ty who runs uh the James S.A. Corey account, because Daniel has his own. But I remember him stating something along the lines of the only way for Earth to have gotten together like this is for a monumental global climate catastrophe. And that is very, very true. And it is one that we are hurtling toward. And it's very rooted in things that can happen. And in some cases, they marry which actually will happen. Nice. Well, thank you. Star Trek is not our future, folks. Star Trek is (laughs) not the future. And and look, Chris knows because he is the only one of us who has stuff in space because we no longer broadcast TV waves out there. So this will never reach the stars. But Chris has stuff in space, so we can we can trust him. But I want to thank you all again. Yeah, I want to say thank you all again for uh, for joining me. I will see you both uh, next Friday at 7. Uh, like I said, uh, your homework is to watch the first two episodes of The Expanse and then don't stop and just keep watching the rest of it because it's really, really good. Uh, I'm going to take a break here for about 30 minutes and then I'm going to come back and play some uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic because I'm feeling sci-fi and I want to oh, be a fucking Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's hard sci-fi, right? Right, Chris? That's uh, Star Wars, yeah? Space Wizards, yeah, that's a thing. No, but it's fun. <laughs> exactly. You can totally get a laser to just stop and be a sword, right? We can do that. I right? actually, I actually have seen footage of. There's this dude who uh, gets a ton of money to build these crazy projects, and through laminar flow, he was basically able to create yeah. a super hot plasma torch. Um, yeah. which is very Not cool. Not quite the same, but very cool. <laughs> also requires a big-ass fuel pack uh, or shop like hose connections to get the fuel to run into it, <laughs> but you can create a plasma sword. You just can't really move around with it. <laughs> yet. Yet. Chris, I'm going to no. get myself some Goliath armor, and I'm going to see you guys back so, here no, on wait. Uh, Friday The Goliath night. armor is very realistic, though. Honestly, that's, that's one of the things that I loved about this is like, Aliens has it. The Expanse has it. Everybody realizes that automating, putting a person into a suit, not only fucking rules, but it's definitely a realistic thing that people are going to do because it dramatically improves your ability to lift and move around heavy objects because heavy objects in space are still heavy. They won't, they, they'll float, but they just, they, there's inertia. It takes, it takes a lot of work to move them. So you're still going to need mech suits. And I'm so here for that. You have no idea. <laughs> all righty guys we'll come back next week for more nerd shit and i'm sure we'll we'll have some yeah. more interesting like weird yeah. facts to explore but oh the fashion segments are gonna be so much fun it's gonna be yes. great yes <laughs> thanks for tuning in y'all we'll see you next week bye thanks friends 